unrelated things. Greetings and welcome to episode number one of Unrelated Things Podcast. It's finally time for me to take unrelated things out of my living room and get it out and make it available to you out there in the audience. And it's time to grow my audience from two cats that are asleep in the other room to actual members of the real general public out there. So I'm really excited to start to get this ball rolling. I've been testing this podcast for a little while. I've done several test episodes in the last few weeks and I've learned a lot of things and I made a lot of mistakes and I haven't even come close to mastering the art of podcasting yet. So I am still, you know, just getting my feet wet and just getting started. So expect many mistakes and many delays and many problems as I learn as I go. Someday, hopefully, I will grow big enough to have a sponsor so I can cover some of my costs. And if I did have a sponsor, I would talk about them here at the front of the episode. But I am not yet anywhere near that that place. But you can find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or Facebook. And you can send me feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. So let's move on to the ruminations and regurgitations of episode number one. My top pick for this week is the TV show Eureka. This TV show is absolutely my favorite TV show that has been aired in the last few years. Um, And something that's just occurred for Eureka News is Eureka... Season number five, which was the final season that was broadcast, um, is now available for viewing on Netflix. So now you can get all five seasons available on Netflix and watch them all there. So some of you who don't know what Eureka is, you maybe you've heard of it, aren't really familiar with it, maybe you've never heard of Eureka. So Eureka is a, a show that was um, on the Sci-Fi Network, and it was based in in reality, but kind of in an extreme version of reality. Uh, It's based in a small town called Eureka, but Eureka was set up by the government as a a think tank and testing ground for radical experimentation. Um, Eureka centers around the the main character, which who becomes the sheriff, whose name is Jack Carter, played by Colin Ferguson, who in my opinion is one of the most amazing comedic actors out there just is really phenomenal in this series. Um, So Jack Carter becomes the sheriff of Eureka after initially accidentally stumbling upon the town, which is, is really hidden from the public in many different ways. Um, Eureka, each episode of Eureka centers around an issue or a problem that develops because of some, some technology that's being tested and, and these go to really, you know, significant extremes and stretching the bounds of, of science. They, they're based in real science theory, but take that to conclusions that are, are really not realistically imaginable in, in the, the real world. And so there's kind of a, a, usually a problem or an issue of the week that, that gets solved by a combination of Sheriff Carter, who, who, generally is is the least smart person in the room as far as it comes to scientific and um you know learning learning through 
you know, college education and all that. He, he's, the, he's the regular guy in the series, um, but it's usually his insights and then his bravery that ends up, you know, finding the ultimate solution for the problem. Um, so for me, Eureka was so engaging and so interesting because it, it was a great mix of kind of uh, mystery solving and pop culture and just, just really, really fun and funny, you know, scenes in, in the, in the show. So I, I mean, I liken it to a mix of the big bang theory and CSI. So it takes some elements from either of those genres, kind of mixes them together in a really interesting way. It's dramatic. It's comedic. It's, it's romantic in ways. It's just a really, really great show. So really super highly recommend that you take a look at it. It was created by Andrew Cosby and Jamie Paglia. And the, the main cast was Colin Ferguson as Sheriff, Sheriff Jack Carter, Sally Richardson Whitfield as Allison, Jordan Henson played, plays Sheriff Carter's daughter, Zoe, Joe Morton uh, plays Henry, Erica Serra, plays Joe Lupo, who is his deputy in mo in most of the series. And Ed Quinn actually started out the series as the head of Global Dynamics. Global Dynamics is the, the central company that the town is built around that houses all of the experimentation that's going on in the town. Eureka evolved over time after starting out as kind of a, a, a somewhat straightforward comedic dramedy. Yeah, I said dramedy. Wow, I hate that word. Co comedic drama. Um, and and the creators were, were never afraid to just break the mold and turn everything on its head. The, there is, there's been some great cliffhangers and great shifts in viewpoint and in, in even character development within the entire series. So I super highly recommend it. Absolutely my favorite recent television show. I was crushed when Comcast came in and bought uh, Sci-Fi and then ended up canceling Eureka due to dwindling profitability. It continued to be profitable, but it wasn't more profitable than it was a year before. So like many things in the systems that we have, you know, it gets pushed by the wayside to bring in something that's, you know, potentially more profitable. So I need you to do two things. If you're interested in Eureka, watch Eureka season five on Netflix. Or if you haven't watched Eureka yet, watch it from the beginning. Really, really worthwhile to watch this entire show beginning to end. Um, and then step two, email Netflix and ask them to produce season number six. We definitely need season number six. I, I expect we will see more Eureka in the future, most likely in the form of some movies. Um, the cast has definitely expressed interest in, and I really was, was surprised and, and crushed when the series ended. And the producers actually is, has also expressed interest in bringing back these characters and bringing back these stories at some point in the future. So I think there's a, a good chance that Eureka could, that we could get more Eureka in the future. And I would absolutely love to see it happen. So moving on and out of the, my top pick, definitely check out Eureka and let's move on to the news. Roll up your trousers. It's time to wade into the news. 
So wading into the shallow end of the news, the news stories that, you know, are either humorous or odd or bizarre are not as hard-hitting and serious as some other news that I'll get to later. So there was a story uh, at the end of March, and this story was produced or actually released by CNN and KHOU-TV in Houston. They're at KHOU.com. And the, the, the first line of this story really kind of bothered me a little bit. Um, because the first line of this story reads, Snakes give a lot of people the creeps, but now there's a new reason to fear them. One has been blamed for setting a house on fire in North Texas. So right off the bat, the writer is, is letting you know that the snake causes house fire in, in North Texas. But then you actually read the real story, which is really, really brief. And here's what really happened. A woman was out cleaning up her yard. And while she was cleaning up her yard, she saw a snake. So she didn't run away and she didn't go and hide. She didn't try to catch it or, you know, hit it with a stick. She had the bright idea that she should throw gasoline on the snake and then light the snake on fire. So she did that. Well, the snake that was on fire didn't just roll over and die. The snake that was on fire slithered away into the pile of brush to hide, to try to get away and escape the fire that was that was burning. And then, of course, when it slithered into that brush, it caught the brush on fire. The brush pile was next to the house, caught the house on fire. So in no way, shape, or form was this house fire the snake's fault. The, the snake was, you know, lit on fire. And then when it tried to hide from that, tried to escape that death, it caught the brush fire on brush pile on fire. It caught the home on fire. This woman caught her own home on fire by her reckless actions. And just crazy story. You know, if you see a snake, don't light it on fire. Walk away. Catch it. Call someone who's, who can handle snakes to take care of it if you need it to be out of the area that it's in. You know, don't be crazy and ridiculous and try to set a snake on fire. Because this could happen to you. This happened. In other news, there was a dog in York, Pennsylvania, that caused an accident. Um, a dog was left alone in the car that was running. It pushed the car, the vehicle, into gear. And as that car rolled forward, somebody tried to stop it. And that person who tried to stop it got hit and actually got hit in between the car they were trying to stop and another parked car. Um, so I think, I think be careful out there, people. The dog, that dog that may be your best friend may have other thoughts in its head. It may be out there interested in, uh, in causing some mayhem intentionally or unintentionally, you know, these, your, your, your fine, well-beloved pet, may actually cause you some mayhem. There's been a few other stories in the news lately about dogs and some unusual stories that I will speak about on future episodes. And another thing. Another thing. There's a company called Lululemon Athletica, and you may have heard of it and you may not have heard of it. It is a clothing retailer that sells athletic clothing, mostly for women, but they have men's lines as well. Um, their top product is yoga pants. Lululemon is actually 
the most productive clothing retailer in dollars per square foot in the United States. And it's the third highest retailer of all, all descriptions in dollars per square foot, only behind Apple and Tiffany's in dollars per square foot in retail space in the United States. So it's a big, big company and really fast growing. So their top, their top item is yoga pants, uh, their top product. But recently they had an issue with their yoga pants and that forced the company to release this statement about the pants. Quote, the ingredients, weight, and longevity qualities of the pants remain the same, but the coverage does not resulting in a level of sheerness in some of our women's black Luan bottoms that fall short of our very high standards. So that was a quote from the company. And they also called this or named this a sheerness problem. What exactly is a sheerness problem? Well, what it really comes down to is your private parts are not all that private when you're wearing these pants that have this sheerness problem. This isn't just a minor issue because this is their top product in their top category. This affected about 17% of the product that it had in stock at the time it was discovered. And they, they point to blame at the, at the manufacturer. The manufacturer said, no, 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 it wasn't us. We made them exactly to the standards that you requested. And, but Lululemon, you know, got behind it and they said, don't worry about it. We realize it's a problem. We've pulled all that product off the shelves. If you bought the product and it exhibits this problem, you can come back and we'll give you a refund. So there's been people that are starting to go in and, you know, ask for refunds for their their pants, their see-through pants. Um, one such customer actually posted on Facebook after she had an experience attempting to return the bottom she had bought at Lululemon. And this is what she posted. I went into my local store to return my Astro pants in invert crops, both purchased this month. I was asked to bend over in order to determine sheerness. The sales associate then perused my butt in the dim lighting of the change room and deemed them not sheer. I felt degraded that this is how the recall is being handled. I called the guest education center, that's their customer service line, to confirm this is their protocol and they verified that yes, the educators will verify sheerness by asking the customer to bend over. And that's ridiculous. And the company realized that that was ridiculous. And they, they've since issued an, uh, a semi-apology and really to, to cover their butts. Um, the Lululemon replied and said, we don't need to see our guests in the garments to deem them sheer. We want our guests to be comfortable in their products and we will make it right for them if they feel their black bottoms are sheer. So hopefully if you have this issue and your pants are see-through and you don't want your pants to be see-through, you, you, you attempt to return them. You have a better experience than this particular customer had. There is, we are not here going to ask you to bend over, we are going to move on. One more thing. So one more thing in the shallow end of the news before we move on to a couple of deeper topics. There's a company in Germany and it found out something really odd when it was sending out its packages to customers in the United States. They seemed to take longer to get there than expected and some of them got lost. 
So they did a little experiment. The name of the company is, the, the company actually makes shoes. They make, you know, really simple styles of footwear. And the name of the company is Atheist. The packaging of their shoes includes tape with the company name on it. So the boxes that they shipped all have this tape that says Atheist on the package. So they were, they were wondering if this was maybe a part of the issue. So they did a little experiment. They sent out 179 packages to 89 different recipients in the United States. And they used two different kinds of tape. On some of the boxes, they used their regular tape with the Atheist label, Atheist brand name right on it. And in other boxes, they just sent them out with regular tape. On average, boxes with their branded Atheist tape took three days longer to get to the recipients. In total, 10 packages disappeared of the 179 packages they sent out. Only one of them had unbranded tape, and 9 out of 10 of the packages that disappeared all had the tape with the brand name Atheist on it. So definitely not a scientific study, but, but an interesting study nonetheless that shows that there may be something unusual going on out there. And we don't know. We don't know where those packages ever did end up. So there's no real good solid conclusions that we can draw. But it's definitely a little bit interesting that the boxes marked with the atheist label disappeared nine times more than the other boxes. So if you're going to ship through the U.S. Postal Service, be careful how you label your package. How you label your package may determine when, how, and if your package actually gets delivered. Hold on tight, we're headed for the deep end. Okay, out of the shallow end of the news into the deep end. I hope you've got your life jacket. The deep end of the news is where I'm going to talk about some topics that I feel have more weight and more significance and aren't about the type of tape that's on a box or the snake that was reported to have helped burn down a house. So on the more serious note this week, uh, I live in Vermont. One of my senators is Senator Bernie Sanders, who is, in my opinion, pretty amazing. He is an independent in the Senate, which is pretty rare and amazing in and of itself. He is a socialist, which is incredibly amazing. Um, and I know, you know, many of you out there might be like, well, it's not pretty amazing for the liberal state of Vermont. Um, but Bernie Sanders really came up through the ranks. He was mayor of Burlington for quite some time. He has been in politics for a long, long time. And he's really been fighting for the average person throughout that time. So Senator Sanders introduced a bill recently to break up big banks that have been deemed too big. Remember back when we had the financial crisis and banks were, were termed and a common phrase was coined called too big to fail. We couldn't afford to let these banks fail because it would just be calamitous for the economy and for the country. So Senator Sanders introduced legislation to break up the banks that have grown so big that the Justice Department has not pursued prosecutions for fear of an indictment would harm the financial system. 
Recently, the uh, Obama's Attorney General, Gen, uh, Eric Holder, says that the Justice, Justice Department might not pursue criminal cases against big banks because, quote, it could have a negative impact on the national economy, perhaps even the world economy. If the government's afraid of per- prosecuting people who are suspected of and there's evidence of them committing crimes, then there's something wrong with the system. That's what the Justice Department should be there for, to keep tabs of and keep track of these entities that are breaking the law and bring them to justice. So what exactly does Sanders' legislation do? It instructs the Treasury Secretary to compile a list of commercial banks, investment banks, hedge funds, and insurance companies that he deems are too big to fail. And there's specific language in the bill about how do you determine that. And it would be any entity that has grown so large that its failure would have catastrophic effect on the stability of either the financial system or the United States economy without substantial government assistance. So like we saw last time when when the financial institutions started to fail and the government jumped in and bailed them out to the tune of, you know, several trillion dollars in guarantees and billion dollars in direct, direct monetary intervention. Within one year after this legislation became law, assuming it gets through, the Treasury Department would be required to break up the banks that were on that list. Uh, Senator Sanders had this to say, if an institution is too big to fail, it is too big to exist. No single financial institution should be so large that its failure would cause catastrophic risk to millions of American jobs or to our nation's economic well-being. No single financial institution should have holdings so extensive that its failure could send the world economy into crisis. We need to break up these institutions because of the tremendous damage they have done to our economy. So that's Bernie Sanders talking about his bill that he introduced to break up the big banks. I think this is critically important legislation. I think that if these banks are outside the law, if they can if they can basically break the law and make billions and billions of dollars doing so, and then when they get caught, they can pay a fine worth a billion dollars, there's absolutely no incentive for these institutions to to live within the law that they're supposed to control you know their behaviors so if that's the case and they're too big that that really taking one of these these institutions down will cause havoc in the economy then they're too big to exist we should limit the size and we and we used to we used to not allow banks to get into other things like insurance and and becoming stockbrokers and and that type of a thing. But we relaxed those regulations and all of these mergers occurred so that these institutions now are are gigantic and in three or four institutions have or or control, you know, money that is equal to two thirds of the GDP of the US. And that is just too big. It's too big to allow to exist. So I hope that this particular legislation gets some traction. And I hope there's a lot of support out there for it and it makes progress through 
the Senate and it becomes law. And this is a related unrelated thing because it's still based on the economy. And an interesting story, um, also released through Senator Sanders, you know, website, but a story that was written by Pat Garofalo. Um, the richest 1% have captured 121% of the income gains during the recovery. So since the recession, you know, things have been progressing and moving forward and getting better um, out there in the economy. But those gains are just really, really unevenly distributed. Um, there are a few people making enormous gains, and the vast majority of the the citizens of the U.S. are not making any gains at all, and are really still, you know, seeing declines. So, but from 2009 to 2011, the average real income per family grew by 1.7%. So that sounds pretty good. The average real income per family grew by 1.7%. So it seems like from that headline or that statement that things are improving and we are all, you know, getting better and seeing seeing more income come in. But when you break that down and see where that money went to and who went who got that money, you can see how uneven that distribution was. In that time period, people with the top 1% of the wealth in the country saw their incomes grow by 11.2%. So they had an 11, they had a double digit increase in their income. The people with the top 1% in the top 1% of the country right now, the bottom 99% shared a decline of 0.4% in income. So all of the bottom, bottom, you know, I, and it's hard to call them the bottom when they're 99%. This is, this is a very, very lopsided uh, a scale here. When you have 1% on one side that made all of the gains and you have 99% of the families in this country who saw losses um, that averaged a 0.4. And it's not, even, it's not even as good as that sounds. A 0.4 decline, oh, that's a really, really modest decline. But when you look even deeper, you see the top 1% grew by 11.2. Well, the top, the next grew by a significant amount as well, which means there's even much, much less money and actually a bigger decline for the bottom 95%. It's hard to call that the bottom. So during this recovery from 2009 to 2011, the top 1% captured 121% of the income gains. From 2009 to 2010, the top 1% grew really, really fast, and then it slowed down between 2010 and 2011. But for the bottom 99% of us, we were stagnant through the entire time period. So just a really incredible number of, when you, when you see those positive economic stories out there, just know this is not widespread, evenly shared positive economic news. This is positive economic news because it is so intensely skewed by the few people at the top which own so much of the wealth in this country. And here is an unrelated thing. Uh, There's an offshoot of the Occupy movement that's doing an amazing job 
in in really executing what I think the the whole Occupy movement um, was largely designed to to focus on and do. It definitely was a movement. Um, it was started with Occupy Wall Street, where they wanted to really call out the banks and the big financial institutions of the egregious nature of some of their business. Anyway, this offshoot of that Occupy movement is called Strike Debt. And there was a story on CNN um, by Blake Ellis that explained one of the projects of Strike Debt. And one of their projects is called the Rolling Jubilee. And through the Rolling Jubilee, this Strike Debt has abolished $1.1 million in medical debt for more than 1,000 people. So this group set, set this little part of their organization aside and said, okay, we're going to do something. We're going to do something real for people out there that are suffering. Medical debt is what puts many, many people into bankruptcy in this country. It destroys people's livings. It destroys people's availability to earn a living. It, it saps all of their income to just try to pay off medical debt. It's an enormous problem in the system that we have of how we pay for medical care. So what the Rolling Jubilee and Strike Debt has done is they did a fundraiser and they raised $21,000. $21,000, not an enormous sum. Go on Kickstarter, you can find many, many, you know, different things you've never heard of that are raising a lot more money than that. They took their $21,000 and they went to some hospitals and they said, we want to buy your uncollected debt. This is a, a process that happens all the time. Hospitals take the debt that they just feel they cannot collect. They know they're not going to get their money back and they sell it so they can recover some of their costs. They sell it often for pennies on the dollar. So they took their $21,000. They purchased $1.1 million worth of debt from these hospitals. This is what the debt collectors do. This is how the debt collectors, how debt collectors make money. They go and they buy bad debts, money that that is that the debt holders are don't believe is going to get repaid. And the debt collector buys that, and then the debt collector now is owed the money, and they go and they try to collect the money. And that's why they they try some really harsh tactics sometimes to collect the money. Um, anything they make above what they spent for that debt is going to be profit in their pocket. So the Rolling Jubilee did this. They bought this $1.1 million in medical debt from, from hospitals out there, and they forgave it. They sent letters to the people who owed the money, and they said, hey, we have paid your bill, and you no longer owe this money. They eliminated the debt for over 900 people out there, and they are going into new fundraising and new new sessions of fundraising. They're going to continue to do this. This is just a really amazing, amazing you know organization doing something fantastic and something direct to help the people. This is a it, this is in the best sense one of the the best things that I've heard of that's evolved out of the Occupy movement. I think this is a great way, a great direction for that movement to go. It's, it's really, really difficult and really, really 
uh, hard to challenge and change the system from the top or from within, um, which is something that Bernie Sanders is trying to do. You know, being in the Senate, it's he's he's a lone voice in the Senate many, many times, but he's a needed voice in the Senate. Um, it's it's really hard to change things from the top. It's a lot easier to change things from the bottom, to develop other systems, to chip away at the economic systems and the challenges of the current economic system that we have. So kudos to the Rolling Jubilee and Strike Debt. Definitely go and check them out. They are at strikedebt.org and look at their Rolling Jubilee project and they have ways that you can donate to that project online. Definitely, I think, a really, really great project. Well, this is not news. We're out of the deep end. We're out of the news and onto some other stories and various different topics. So, you know, on this podcast, I will just talk about whatever I see that strikes my fancy, um, you know, out there in any particular given week. So I'll, you know, I'll talk about movies. Um, and so this is kind of in the movie category, but this is not a major motion picture. This is actually a really, a, a rather short documentary on uh, a museum in my state of Vermont, which I did not realize was there. So it was really interesting to see this come up. This was on the Gizmodo site at gizmodo.com is where I saw this. And the, the byline is, the, the name of the, the byline is View Profile. So someone apparently named View Profile or who wanted to go by the name View Profile uh, posted this story at Gizmodo. And there's so there's a short documentary called Toy Place. It's made by Ben Churchill and it tours the Vermont Toy Museum. The Vermont Toy Museum houses a collection of almost 100,000 toys. And this documentary really does a great job showing the toys, showing a lot of the toys. You'll recognize all kinds of toys from your childhood in this documentary. And it does a really nice job of of talking to the family about their interest in their their desire to to put this all together and then how they how they went about it um on display at this museum there are about ten thousand toys out on display out of a hundred thousand only ten percent of this collection is on display ninety thousand toys are in storage um and really i one of the incredible things that came out of this um video this documentary for me was the the collector of these toys did not collect any of these toys from online sources uh, and I just find that really incredible a lot of toy collectors really serious toy collectors will constantly watch the online you know auctions and what's coming up it really helps people you know connect outside of their local area and helps them find find really specific things they're looking for it's a great resource this gentleman that did most of this collecting did not use online sources to, to do his collecting. He goes to flea markets, he goes to auctions, he goes to other other places to find all these toys. Um, these toys range from video games to dice to jump ropes to the toys that, that come in, in meals at the fast food restaurants. Just any kind of toy that you can think of. 
um, you know, from from way back in the early days of marbles up to now can be on display in this in this museum. So it was a really, really great uh, video to see and to watch and never really realized I've, I've been to this area. This to, Vermont Toy Museum is located in Queechee, Vermont, um, right near the Queechee Gorge, which is a really beautiful natural gorge that's there, kind of a local tourist attraction in Queechee, Vermont. There's a lot of really nice things in the Queechee area, and this Vermont Toy Museum is there. Um, I did not notice it there the last time I was in Queechee, which I probably, actually, last time I spent some time in Queechee was two and a half years ago or more. Um, and definitely the next time I am in Queechee, Vermont, that's Q-U-E-C-H-E-E, -E, Vermont, I will absolutely check out the Vermont Toy Museum. If you want to see more, check out gizmodo.com or just search for Vermont Toy Museum. Or the name of the documentary is called Toy Place. Um, and it's just a great view of, of this, you know, museum that this family has put together with all these toys they've collected. Because TV is so good. So right now, I think TV is so good. There's uh, several really good, high-quality shows that are on TV right now. There's Walking Dead. There's Breaking Bad. There's others. Okay, there's two really, really good. No, there's others as well. Those, I think, are just the really two absolute standouts. There's Game of Thrones on HBO. There you go. There's a third really, really killer, well-made, interesting program that's out there right now on TV. Um, I, I would, four, four years ago, five years ago, I think that the, the TV lineup was really, really weak and did not have a lot of strength in it. Um, but there's a couple of new shows coming out that actually look really, really interesting. One is Defiance on Sci-Fi. Looks like it could be a really interesting program. Uh, it's, it's, and I'll, I'll probably talk about it more in the future. Um, but it's really a, a big, big bet and a big gamble that sci-fi is taking on defiance they've launched this this significant program as well as launching an online game gaming experience um set in the same world in the same same characters and same place and there will be some some things that imp they will impact each other in different ways anyway not the topic that I was going to talk about on today's show. So I'll reserve my judgment. That has not been released yet. It will come out soon. Um, but let, I'm going to just talk about a different program that also has not come out yet. But there's a program. And let's see. This is going to be on CBS. And it is called Under the Dome. And it will come out on June 24th this year is when it will premiere. Under the Dome looks really, really interesting. It's based on a novel by Stephen King. The writer of the series is Brian Vaughn, who wrote Lost. And the director of episode one is the uh, is Niels Opel, who was the director of the Swedish version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is the better version, in my opinion. Um, so he was the director of the first episode of Under the Dome. Here's a brief description of the story, and this was quoted in... 
a story on Geek Tyrant by Joey Parr, P-A-U-R. Um, so here is a quote about the program. On an entirely normal, beautiful fall day in Chester's Mills, Maine, the town is inexplicably and suddenly sealed off from the rest of the world by an invisible force field. Planes crash into it and fall from the sky in flaming wreckage. A gardener's hand is severed as the dome comes down on it. People running errands in the neighborhood in the neighboring town are divided from their families, and cars explode on impact. No one can fathom what this barrier is, where it came from, and when or if it will go away. So really, really interesting premise for a television series, in my opinion. Definitely something right up my alley. I enjoy the science fiction stories or stories with some kind of fantasy, some kind of unusual twist, something with a a problem that needs to be solved, something with an, an unexplained event that the, that information um, gets is uncovered about. Um, so looks like a really interesting show. Um, there are a couple of, or there's a trailer and there is a little behind the scenes video that have now been posted. Uh, let's see, those are on YouTube. So if you search for Under the Dome on YouTube, you should probably be able to find those out. One snapshot um, from this particular story shows the actor who is in Breaking Bad, who plays the brother-in-law DEA agent, um, who appears to also be in this series as well. And he, he's a, a excellent actor, an excellent part that he plays on Breaking Bad. So looks like it's going to be a really, really interesting program. And I look forward to seeing that. Apple. So on to Apple news. Apple's definitely one of my favorite subjects. It's something that I read a lot about online. I follow all the rumor sites, etc. So there are rumors that, that fly around all the time. There's a few, a few uh, light stories that came out this week on Apple. Rumors about the next version of the iPhone have been ongoing since the last version, since the iPhone 5 came out last year. So the rumors are starting to solidify a little bit. There's starting to be some more consistency in them as far as timing goes. Um, the assumptions made about the next product are, are starting to coalesce and be, be very similar. But since Apple has followed a, a particular pattern in the last few uh, releases of phones, They'll come out with a new version, which will have a new number code like the iPhone 4. Then they'll follow that by a revision, which is not a major, major redesign, which will come out as the 4S. The last version of the iPhone 5, the iPhone that came out is the iPhone 5. So the anticipation is that the next release of the iPhone will be the iPhone 5S. Um, so that's a, a pretty solid rumor out there, and, and based on the history, it's very, very likely that that will be the case. No no redesign of the case, um, so maybe some internal redesign, maybe some upgraded internals, maybe an upgraded camera, um, but an, an evolution of the, the 5 to the 5S. As rumors get closer and closer to reality, when the two coincide, and they often don't, um, the Wall Street Journal will will report. And the Wall Street Journal seems to have pretty solid sources, or at least waits until the information is much more solid before they publish it. So they tend to be fairly accurate. 
Um, so the Wall Street Journal reported that Apple will begin production on the next iPhone this quarter and then potentially be able to launch that this summer. And that coincides with the other rumors that, that I've heard prior to now. Um, and the Wall Street Journal writes, Apple Incorporated plans to begin production of the new iPhone, its similar size and shape to its current one, in the second quarter of the year, which is coming up right now, according to people familiar with the device's production, teeing up a possible summer launch for the next version of its flagship device. The, rumor, the rumors are really coalescing over a June or July introduction and launch of the iPhone 5S. So that's something, you know, that is at this point becoming expected. And with the Wall Street Journal weighing in on it, it really makes that rumor um, even more likely to happen. So that's the iPhone 5S. And that's, you know, what we expect to be imminent. Um, but what about the iPhone 10? Hmm, iPhone 10, that's a long way away if they continue their their current structure. Um, so there was a recent patent that Apple filed, and Apple files patents very frequently, and some for very unusual devices or unusual methods um, get out there. But the most recent, uh, or one of the most recent Apple patent filings, and this I've, I got this particular story from TechCrunch, written by Daryl Etherington. Um, in a new patent filing, Apple has filed a patent application for a wraparound style AMOLED display. And AMOLED is just the style of display and, and how it actually, you know, how the pixels are designed and how they're lit and all that stuff. Um, but a, the wraparound style display is what was really, really interesting in this particular patent filing. The patent describes designs that could have a seamless, continuous surface. Um, it's a pretty comprehensive patent. It, it mentions a lot of other factors. It mentions built-in facial recognition as well as a method of layering displays on top of each other. So there's like a see-through display on top of another display so they can actually layer what is presented on the displays and produce different visual effects including like a 3D effect. Um, and the glass used to describe the display is either a seamless glass, so just a seamless curved glass that wraps around, or features small design elements that break the, the joints that, that kind of hide where one piece connects to another piece. Um, in, in this patent filing, there actually are some illustrations, and there's a really, really interesting illustration of a, a kind of an oval-shaped not an oval shape, it's a flat, it's a flat and rectangular, but the front face is curved from left to right, um, kind of in an arc, and actually the back face also has the same curve. So the end of that phone has a, a really oblique oval shape. Um, and it shows the icons on that screen wrapping around. It shows uh, volume controls on the side, but actually are like a, a icon on the side of the screen, on the, what, what, would be the edge of the device. Just some really, really interesting styles and designs in this particular patent filing. Again, Apple files many, many, many patents and most of which we never see the results of come out into an actual product or at least not in the way that they appear to be described in, in the, um, the, the patent filing itself. But just a really, really interesting 
concept and idea that Apple has filed the patents on that is it's definitely a ways off from becoming a reality and becoming a product that could be mass produced for the public. And that's why I'm, I'm considering it somewhere in the range of the iPhone 10 for that particular you know technology to really really come together. There have been a lot of rumors about the iWatch as well. Who knows what it might be called if and when it does appear. But there's been lots and lots of rumors and it is expected that Apple will release a a wristwatch sized device at some point in the future. And some of those um, rumors center around a curved glass screen. So I don't I don't know that we'll see that just yet. I'm sure there are some experiments with it deep within Apple somewhere. Um, but interesting to, to hear about those curved glass screen rumors and then see this patent application for a, a curved wraparound glass screen. So on to another piece of news um, with Apple this week. And this just came out. And this is, there. there's several people who watch Apple really closely and have some good connections um, to people that know what's going on inside Apple. And so there were some rumors and discussions that happened just the other day online about iOS 7. So the current version of the iPhone runs iOS 6. And that's one that's, you know, the, the current public version right now of iOS. Um, so they're working on iOS 7 in Apple. Absolutely. And I'm sure they're also working on iOS 8. Uh, what what some people have heard recently, and in particular, um, this was a story on Mac Rumors by Hussein Sumer, S-U-M-R. And he quoted John Gruber from Daring Fireball. John Gruber is definitely someone with some connections to people who know what's going on in Apple because he, he hears and publishes about Apple pretty frequently. And what he has heard recently is that the the work on iOS 7 ha- is running behind. It's not keeping pace with where they wanted it to be right now. And they've actually pulled engineers from work on the next version of OS 10, which will be 10.9, to work on iOS 7 and get iOS 7 done and ready. If they're shifting, if they're shifting people from other projects onto iOS seven, to me that speaks of a nearer intended release of iOS seven, um, which, which you know, because of the amount that I like Apple and what they're doing, um, is is a good thing. Um, so they're working harder to get that done, and they're they're maybe they're slipping and falling behind, but they're working hard to get things done. What has been heard about iOS 7 is that it will have a significant system-wide user interface overhaul. So if you follow Apple at all, you know that Scott Forrestal used to be the person in charge of iOS software. Um, And he was in charge of the design and he was in charge of the functionality and and making that team produce the software that ran on iOS. Scott Forrestal has left Apple. He was, he was, Released. I don't know that it was his choice. Uh, I think that he was let go um, from Apple uh, in the past year. And Johnny Ive has actually taken over overseeing the development of the software in addition to the development of the hardware. So he's coming from a really different design direction than Scott Forstall was. So the expectation is that the interface and the look of the apps will 
will see some significant changes. And it will be visual changes, I think, more so than functional changes. One little hint of this came when Apple re-released or released the next version of the podcast app recently. The initial version of the podcast app had this really, I, I found interesting, background image as your podcast was playing of a reel-to-reel tape. Um, and the, the, the tape would move from one side to the other side as your podcast was playing back. That's gone. And the user interface is really cleaned up on podcasts. I'm not completely in love with it, but it, it really is a little bit more functional. I think it could look even nicer than it does. So I think they definitely have some, some more work they could do with it. But the initial podcast app was pretty universally panned by the people out there in the Apple community. Um, just was not great functional great functionality in that particular app. Um, so the revision is is much, much better received than the original. And I've actually started to use the revised podcast app to play back my podcast um, where I had previously used Instacast. I have not deleted Instacast yet. I'm not 100% sold that podcast is the best app for listening to podcasts, but I'm really giving it a try. And so far, so good. For that. Um, so in any event, we do have iOS 7 to look forward to at some point. I expect they are planning to release that when they are intend to release the iPhone 5S. Um, but it's also possible that the iPhone 5S gets released and lives with iOS 6 for a while and iOS 7 could potentially come out later. But iOS has seen a significant update every year, just as the phones have seen a significant update every year. So definitely have updates to look forward to for iOS. All right, cool. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. All right, so let's go ahead and move on after an awkward pause. That could have been the name of this podcast, Awkward Pause. Awkward Pause, or as I spoke of in Episode Zero, if you didn't catch Episode Zero, go back and take a look for it. It was my Hey, Here I Am episode, but this isn't really an episode on my podcast, so you can go back and check that out. Um, So Episode Number One, it's time to, to move on to another story, move out of the Apple realm, and move on to podcasts. So I, I listen to podcasts a lot. I'm inspired to do this podcast from listening to podcasts. Um, the I think the, the podcast that's impacted me the most, that's inspired me the most to make a podcast on my own is The Morning Stream with Scott Johnson and Brian Ibbett. It is the king of the hill in my podcast universe. I know there's others that are bigger and there's others that have more viewers and more listeners and and that people are much more aware of um but the morning stream is a fantastic uh podcast that's out there just endlessly entertaining um i i hope to have 10 percent of the entertainment in my podcast that they've got in theirs so scott johnson and brian ibbett are the hosts of this podcast and it comes from the frog pants studios which is the company run by scott johnson which has several different interesting podcasts other than the morning stream. So the Frog Pants Network uh, in 2011 in January launched the morning stream podcast. 
It is a podcast that is four days a week. So it's daily morning podcast on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Um, they have entertainment politics, live calls. They have different segments from, from different contributors focused on specific topics and a lot more. It's just really fun to listen to. The banter between Scott and Brian is amazing. They um, show their program goes out live. It live streams. And there's a chat room, and the chat room, you know, chimes in, and and Scott and Brian, you know, relate to the chat room or or call out things that are said in the chat room, you know, at different times throughout the the program. Just a really really well done podcast, and something that I really enjoy listening to tremendously. Um, but it it is only four days a week, so it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So I, on Friday, I I miss it over the weekend too so that was one of the incentives for me to create my podcast I'm like okay I'm going to fill the Friday gap and since I thought of that I recognize I'm not the first person who's thought of that um, there's actually some people in the chat room of the morning stream who have put together their their Friday show uh, I don't know what the name of that show is so maybe on a future episode I will check that out and let you know more about it um, in addition to that, uh, there's a podcaster and other entertainer named Justin Robert Young, who has a segment on the um, morning stream. And he has also just recently started his own podcast. He's been on a lot of different podcasts. He's been on the NSFW show with Brian Brushwood for quite a while now. And he just started his own solo show and initially intended that to fill the Friday gap as well. Um, timing didn't really work out for him, so his show doesn't necessarily come out in that time frame. I don't know that my show will necessarily come out in that time frame, though my intent is to publish Thursday nights, so it will be available on Friday. So absolutely go and check it out. Go to Frog Pants Studios at frogpants.com. Check out everything that, that uh, Brian puts out there. No, sorry, Brian and Scott put out there, and uh, Scott actually runs it, so I, I misspoke. Check out everything that Scott puts out there, some of which is in conjunction with Brian, um, and, you know, see what you like. There's a lot of great, great other programs on Frog Pants as well as The Morning Stream, but absolutely super highly recommend The Morning Stream. It's a big inspiration for me to test the waters of podcasting. I think you just nailed it. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. Not that kind of stuff, but maybe this next kind of stuff that I'm about to talk about. Um, by the way, those were quotes pulled from The Morning Stream with Scott Johnson. And again, part of why I find it endlessly entertaining to listen to that is just the 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 stuff they talk about and the way they talk about it is just all entertaining to me. But anyway... Back to this uh, this next story, which can be partially annoying to me. And this is a, an app story. It's not a nap story. It's an app story. So there is an app on iOS called Flipboard. Flipboard just recently released uh, Flipboard version 2.0. And it has some really interesting and really solid new functions. Um, 
Flipboard is kind of a magazine style display of information that's online. And you can use it to follow various types of news. And I use it to follow various news outlets. And I also use it to follow my Twitter stream, my Twitter feed. So that everyone that I'm subscribed to in Twitter, their stories will show up in Flipboard and in a really, really nice layout that's, that's really nice to browse through. Um, the major new function of Flipboard 2.0 is the magazine function. So they've added this new magazine function where you can, anything that you see and read on Flipboard, you can basically save that into your own magazine. Um, it's, it's basically a public collection of your favorite items and favorite stories. It works really, really easily. Every story or every item that you view on Flipboard will have a plus button that's, that's down in the corner. And you can hit that plus button, tell it which magazine that you've set up, which of your magazines you want to save that into, and click save. It's that easy to add things into your magazine. You can reset the cover image of your magazine. It will generally put in the, the most recent image, but you can go in and you can select a specific image and say, use this image for the cover. And you can kind of lock in a cover image for your magazine. So I've been playing for that with that for a while, and it's a really, really nice function. I've actually set up a magazine for my favorite TV show that I talked about at the beginning of the episode, Eureka. So there's one about a whole bunch of different tweets and different... Um, videos and images that I've come across regarding the TV show Eureka. And I've set up uh, one for unrelated things. There's kind of a general unrelated things magazine on Flipboard. And there's also a unrelated things deep end magazine. So where the more serious news stories kind of will get collected um, as well. So with Flipboard 2.0, they also made some changes to their user interface. And there were some positive changes, but there's a few changes that are driving me crazy. Let's talk about the good stuff first. So in the old version of Flipboard, before 2.0 rolled out, there would be times where I would flip flip to a story. So by flipping, I mean I'm just dragging my finger from side to side, like flipping a page of a book and moving from one story to the next. So I would flip to a story And the story would have a link embedded, or the tweet would have a link embedded, to an app. And with no warning, Flipboard would close and would open the app store and open up that page for that app. That was extraordinarily annoying. Um, There would be also times when there would be a particular link to a movie. And Flipboard would close and the YouTube app would open up to, to show that movie instead of showing natively in Flipboard, which a lot of movies will do. It it was frustrating to be pulled out of Flipboard when I didn't want to and just have to go back. So in Flipboard 2.0, there's now a warning that pops up if a link is going to take you out of the Flipboard app. And you can decline. And you can just say, no thanks, I want to stay here. So that's an excellent, excellent update to the Flipboard 2.0 user interface. Now we get into, because of the way I use Flipboard, I use Flipboard to follow my Twitter stream. And... It does a fantastic job displaying images and videos and websites that people have linked to um, as significant portions of the page. It used to do a fine job displaying text-only tweets in, in before Flipboard 2.0 came out. But the interface changes in Flipboard, Flipboard 
make it really frustrating to deal with and read the text-only tweets that are a big part of the stream. So now in the regular view where you see multiple multiple tweets on one page or multiple they're kind of little panels all in one page um, text-only tweets get truncated so they get pushed off to one side and pr practically as a list and the, comp the, full, the full text of the tweet doesn't show partial text of the tweet will often show occasionally none of the text of the tweet will show only the the person who actually you know sent the tweet will show and you'll have to actually select it to read the tweet and that's where another new annoying to me function came up in flipboard when i when you select those tweets they don't open up in a full page, which is how all the other panels open up when you select them. They open up in their own little pop-up window. Um, for me, that view, that type of view, is really, really annoying. I don't want it in its own little pop-up window. I'd much rather see it in the full page view. I, I know, you know, they probably did this to add some functionality because there's definitely more functionality added in, including being able to save that tweet into one of your magazines. I think there's different ways to connect to those tweets or to forward those tweets that weren't all there before in the previous system. But with the pop-up, it pops up the tweet and then you have to dismiss the pop-up to go to the next tweet to read the next tweet. It's, it's a, a really, really challenging way to try to read through a stream of, of tweets. Um, if you go to the full page mode, so in Flipboard, if you haven't experienced it, and there's several panels there that show several different stories or several different tweets if you're following a Twitter feed, you select one of those and it will generally expand to full page, which is what the text tweets used to do but no longer do. In that full page mode, you can then flip from story to story one by one as they were displayed on the, on the regular, regular view. Now, previously you could flip through and your text-only tweets were included in the full page view. They just were centered, the, the text was larger, and you could flip through and you could read every single tweet in your stream. Now, when you're in full page mode, the text-only tweets do not show up at all. So as you're flipping through, if you stay in full page mode, you are missing large portions of your stream. So it's become really, really frustrating and annoying for me to try to use Flipboard in the way that I've been accustomed to using Flipboard in the past. And I use Flipboard every day. I still use Flipboard every day. Flipboard is the probably the app that is the most used um, on my iPad. It is the way that I catch up with news programming and with my Twitter stream. And you can search it, you can search for stories, you can follow specific topics. There's some really good curators that have developed um, a collection of links to particular news stories. You can follow news outlets. It's, it's still a really, really good, solid app. It's one that I have not abandoned and hope not to abandon. It's one that I still use every day, and it's one that I still recommend. But the functionality that they've changed in regards to reading tweets and especially reading text-only tweets are really, really frustrating. And I am looking for other ways to follow the Twitter stream. And the Twitter clients to me that I've seen are 
mostly text-based. They don't display images and websites in a really nice, large, readable way. The, just the magazine style of Flipboard is outstanding. But if that previous functionality doesn't come back, and I've, I've let Flipboard know that, hey, I have these challenges with the way I use Flipboard and the changes that you've made. So hopefully they take that into, into effect and, and put in some options to view tweets in the way that they used to be able to display or they used to display tweets. It would be great. Um, one other little challenge I have with the update is now when you're flipping through a, a, a stream of tweets or stories, whatever, and there's a video embedded on the page, it starts to play automatically. So this is, I would rather it not start to play automatically. I would rather choose if I want to watch that particular video or not watch that particular video. Um, the old, the old version would not automatically play the video. You would, you would basically press play to play the video if you wanted to. So the, the automatic playing of the videos is also another rather annoying update to Flipboard 2.0. Again, I still do recommend Flipboard despite all of my challenges with the new update, many of which I hope they revert back or provide options to revert back to the previous way of displaying that information. Um, if, if, they, if, they have, if they reverted back, I would unequivocally five stars, six stars for, for Flipboard. With the new updates and the new, the new good functionality that they've added in to save stories to your own magazines, which are public. By the way, you can make those magazines private if you don't want anybody to be able to see that if they search for it and come across it. You can make that private so only you can view it. So you can save stories for yourself as opposed to creating a collection that's public. Um, you know, I'd love to see some of that functionality, some of the previous functionality come back and revert back or again, give options to revert back to. It would be a, a, a six-star app for me if the those functionalities that I've just spoken about were still in place and you know add the new but don't don't disrupt the old so much and i know there are probably some good business reasons why some of those disruptions are made maybe playing the videos automatically uh provides them with more links or more hits and they get a benefit from that i don't know the behind the scenes or reasons why some of those changes have been made but again some really really good nice new changes to flipboard and a few things that Personally, I find extraordinarily frustrating and, and annoying about the update to Flipboard. And then on another note, I did a search um, as I was putting this episode together. What are people out there on the web saying about the Flipboard update? And there were a lot of websites, a lot of technology websites that had up advanced copies of Flipboard 2.0. And I don't know how extensive those copies were, if they were just copies of, or if they were just extended functionality of the new functions, the magazine functions, or if they were um, really full-blown full versions of this is how the new system will act. So I don't know exactly what they had to make their judgments on, but they primarily focused on the new functions, and I expect that. I think that that's, that's what's the most different about the prior version than the new version is the magazine function. But I found no one out there anywhere who made any comments about the user interface changes um, and and whether they thought they were fantastic or thought they were challenging. So just interesting that all of the 
reviews that have been posted that I've been able to come across all are narrowly focused or just are glowing reviews about Flipboard 2.0. Again, my review, it's mixed. It's worth looking at, but for following a Twitter stream or a Twitter feed, it definitely has some challenges with how it presents the data that, are, that were significantly better in the previous version. So that actually wraps up the first episode of Unrelated Things. I hope you enjoyed it enough so that you'll come back and check it out again. If you did, or if you didn't, you can let me know at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can find about more, you can find out more about unrelated things at unrelatedthings.net, and you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Unrelated things.